All right. Well, thanks again for joining us. Uh, Today, I am excited about the conversation, uh, the topic that we have for the morning. If you were here a few weeks ago as we were wrapping up our series in Exodus, um, we spoke about the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, there was this distinctive language that caused me to uh, jump into a subject that I'd been researching for a number of months that I think has some fascinating implications in missiology, in the way we interpret Scripture, uh, in the ways we live our lives, in the ways we approach our Heavenly Father. Um, And uh, so I, I went into it briefly a few weeks ago, and I wanted to go a little bit deeper today and explore um, uh, this concept of guilt, shame, and fear, okay? Now, uh, anthropologists identify three primary ways in which cultures will normalize morality, normalize right and wrong uh, within their their societies. So Ruth Benedict was one of the early uh, sociologists and researchers that begin to identify uh, three primary ways that right and wrong morality is is normalized within a culture. And the three that many, um, uh, many anthropologists point to are guilt, shame, and fear-based societies. Uh, so I mentioned these a little while back, and we'll get, yeah, that's fine, you can leave it up, but we'll get into the de- details of that in just a minute. Um, we're probably most familiar with the concepts of uh, a guilt-driven society. This is a judicial system uh, in which morality is defined by laws, by right and wrong. Uh, when someone has uh, broken a law, there is a consequence. Uh, you have to pay your fine or do your time uh, to be then, uh, you know, innocent beyond the, the punishment and and re um, and, and and rejoin society. Whereas shame based cultures rely on relationships and reputations. Okay, and uh, in these uh, honor shame driven cultures, those are the two. Um, polarities, right? You are honored or you are shame, uh, at, at shame in your culture. Uh, what's interesting about honor-shame cultures uh, is that 65% of the world's cultures operate on honor-shame systems, okay? And um, so honor in that society is the currency upon which the culture operates. Avoiding shame and acquiring honor is the operating system. Uh, and then fear-based cultures, Let's go ahead and walk through and look at a a little bit of the details of these cultures just to get an idea of what we're talking about. Uh, Eventually, we're going to find ourselves in the book of, uh, in the book of Mark. but I want to I want to run through some of this stuff and talk about some of the implications, and it will uh, greatly affect the way we hear and read this text today. So, in a guilt-driven society, and I know it's the negative words, right? That might grate on us a little bit. Uh, to each negative, there is a positive, uh, the the positive polarity, and we'll talk about that on the next slide here in a minute. But in a guilt-driven society, uh, it's often individualistic. Uh, a major question that's being asked is, "How can my sins be forgiven, uh, and and I can be assured of heaven?" This is speaking from uh, less the anthropological perspective and more from the theological perspective. Right? Um, how can my sins be forgiven? How can I be assured of heaven? Uh, generally, the theology of uh, these guilt-driven nations, uh, like America and and uh, many others, uh, would be August- Augustinian and uh, Reformed theology. And if those terms aren't 
terribly familiar to you. I'll, I'll let you look those up later and do a little research. You'll find much of the language quite common to experiences you might have had in church here in the States. Um, so the primary metaphor in understanding scripture and theology is generally a, a courtroom or a legal system, right? Um, the primary locations uh, would be in the West, in Europe, and North America, and uh, they are generally historically Christian nations. Now, here's the one that we're going to spend some time looking at and read, reading scripture about here in a minute, um, shame-driven cultures. So uh, a culture that honors on um, uh, the honor-shame model is more collect- collectivistic. A uh, major question they're asking is, how can I be part of the community um, to be respected within this community? Uh, Christian theology, interestingly, is relatively undeveloped uh, in this arena. Um, the reason being, I said earlier, 65% of the world's cultures uh, operate in, in, in the, with these norms. Um, 90% of the unreached population of the world, that is, uh, as far as Christendom uh, and missions, 90% of the unreached population of the world operate within these cultures. And what's fascinating is that in missions, um, and well, we'll talk more about that in a second, but in missions, we quite often go over speaking the language of our nation, the language that we have learned, right? And so we'll speak of courtroom and legal systems in nations that have little or none of that perspective. Uh, Morality, right and wrong, salvation are described in quite different terms. So uh, they're they're community-driven. The primary metaphor that resonates from Scripture would be community, relational. Uh, These cultures are often found in the East, in in the Middle East and in Asia, and uh, um, Christianity is more sparse amongst them. And then finally, animistic cultures, uh, fear-driven cultures. Uh, Animistic meaning um, concerned about the spirits and the ancestors. A primary question that's being asked, how can I access the power to control life? Um, Much recently, uh, recently much of the um, evangelism and work that's been happening in our animistic, fear-driven cultures has been by Pentecostal and charismatic churches, so there's strong influences there. Um, The principal metaphor would be combat or military in this sort of context. It's often found in the South and Africa or in tribal regions, and uh, Christianity has been fairly recent to these regions. Okay, so let's, let's move forward. So missiologically, these are some of the questions being asked, some of the metaphors and things from Scripture that are going to make sense. But as we move forward, uh, the question uh, becomes, um, you know, how is this conversation of guilt, shame, fear, how is this relevant in my life? And I want to consider this. Go ahead and roll for, forward for me, Denny. Um, we uh, start to look at um, the language of Scripture and conceptually, uh, this, uh, how will I understand Scripture? How will I interpret the Bible? Now, in the West, we often find ourselves gravitating towards passages that uh, fit into our cultural paradigm on uh, the guilt-innocence spectrum. Uh, So we mentioned earlier the metaphor in there would be a courtroom metaphor, Um, God is perceived primarily as the lawgiver and the judge. Sin relates to breaking the law. Christ then is the sacrifice that brings about salvation, that is forgiveness. Um, and the mission then is uh, to pursue and to know truth. 
uh, to evangelize and to share this truth that we have come to know. So this describes kind of our judicial system of understanding scripture and all that. Now, it looks a little bit different in our honor-shame-based cultures. The primary metaphor being community, God uh, resonates in this, again, biblical language, um, uh, as a father or a patron, right? A father who has uh, invited us in, adopted us into his family. Uh, sin is uh, thought about and, and spoken of in terms of disloyalty. Christ is the mediator then, uh, that having been distanced from, shamed, and ostracized from the presence of God, Christ is that mediator that invites us to into the presence of God. Salvation then uh, is a conversation of honor and face, having been restored to community, risen up out of my shame, lifted up out of the, my shame by Jesus, um, and, and brought back into an honorable place in the household of our heavenly father and the mission then is to be reunited in community and then finally uh, briefly on the fear-driven conversation um, the primary metaphor is combat god perceived as a ruler and creator the sin would be idolatry um, and christ is the conqueror who who overcame sin and death right and and because of that Peace and freedom have been brought into the lives of people, and the mission is to know the power of God and to be enveloped in the power of God. Now, as I spoke through all those, uh, I hope um, for those of us that have you know, been in church a while and studied the Bible and had spiritual conversations, I hope that in each one of them, you're able to hear Scripture speaking about these things, right? What I do not want to describe today is like a right or wrong paradigm and understanding. What I want us to consider uh, is on a number of levels, the different ways our paradigms, our thought processes, our cultural norms speak into the way uh, we interact with people around us, speak into the ways that we interpret Scripture. Um, so biblical interpretation of Scripture is is beautifully diverse in the different norms and modes that people came from. Um, so I want to give a few examples from Scripture of what this might look like, and you can kind of in your head be thinking, go ahead and just leave that there, Danny, so we have at least titles. Uh, what's happening in these texts? So we'll start at the very beginning. Adam and Eve uh, are in the garden, uh, bliss and peacefulness, right? Walking with God, but then they eat from the tree they're uh, commanded not to eat from. And God comes walking in the garden, and do you remember their response? Do you remember what they do? They hide and they cover themselves, right? What, what do you hear in the language of their response? It's not a, I'm sorry, I've sinned, I've broken the law, can I be forgiven? It is a response of shame and of hiding and, and withdrawal. And we'll talk more about the effects of shame in a few minutes. Um, in the Ten Commandments, we spoke a little while ago uh, about this, but the Ten Commandments are laying out a law. In that, we would probably hear the more judicial conversation in the left-hand column here, right? Except that there was a couple commandments that we, we identified as kind of distinct. Why does that make the top 10 or the first 10 list of commandments? For instance, God says, my name will be honored, right? He says, you will not misuse the name of the Lord. And it's like, how does that fit on that category? And he's speaking to this honor, shame culture that salvation is to have face, right? Uh, he, he, he's, 
this command speaking to an Israelite people, which by the way, our scriptures revealed to the Israelite people, an honor-shame-based culture. Uh, we will find so much depth in scripture as we listen through the lens of the Israelite people to the ways God says, yes, these are the laws by which you will live, but you will live honorable lives. You will honor me. You will bring honor to my name over and over again. In Scripture, we'll hear those things. And then finally, I'll mention the prodigal son. The story of the son who goes off and he squanders all of his family's money and uh, he returns to his father in what posture? He returns to his father thinking, maybe I could just be a slave in his household. My life would be better even at that point if I could just be a slave in my father's household. He knew that the things that he had done had brought shame upon himself, brought shame upon his household, that he was not to be honored within this household any longer. But what does the father do? Both in the Garden of Eden and in the story of the prodigal son, we see this parallel response of the father in these texts. In the Garden of Eden, God clothes them. He covers their shame. He covers their nakedness, right? Uh, in, in the story of the prodigal son, the father honors the son with a great party and rings and a robe, and he, he invites his son back into the family. He gives him honor where the son felt none. So these are a few examples, just like in Scripture, of where it will become abundantly clear uh, that the Scripture is speaking to this paradigm that sometimes is far from our own minds. But in, in hermeneutics, in biblical interpretation, it's incredibly important to consider a couple of different things. First of all, the culture from which we're hearing the text. So each week when we speak, we'll talk about some of the cultural norms and some of the things that surround this text, right? Uh, the reasons people said or did the things that they did, because it might be quite distinctive from ours. But not only is that initial culture significant when we go to scripture and try to find depth and meaning and understanding and application and life, but further, it's important to perceive ourselves in our own culture. What are the norms that are speaking into this text from my own experience, from my own life? And so, I want to bring up this conversation today for a couple reasons. First of all, in the mission field, it's incredibly significant to know the language of the people that we're going to and to allow Scripture to speak powerfully of that same language. Found in Scripture is language that relates to all three of these modes of operations culturally. So in, in missions, it's important, but also in biblical I interpretation, I think it's incredibly important that we can hear through these different lenses, that we can see in Scripture um, ways that, that these different realities are being spoken to. Now, uh, by this point, uh, you're probably saying, you might be saying, uh, it's not that cut and dry. Like, no one of these seems like exactly how we perceive, exactly how we uh, relate to the world. And I, I absolutely agree with this. In fact, every culture is made up of a dynamic blend of all three of these. There'll probably be one that's most dominant. So, for instance, in America, uh, I've often heard like a 70-30 split between the guilt and the shame. So 70% on the guilt side, we're very judicial in the way we think. Uh, guilt is... Um, upon the individual um, and is dealt with in judicial ways. Uh, whereas, like in, in Asia, 
in the east in different places. Uh, you'll find uh, more of a 70-30 split, um, shame in the primary, maybe a little bit of fear in the background. So just curious about us as a people, some of the norms that, that I grew up with that I thought maybe might represent us as a church. I, uh, I took a little quiz. Um, it's called the Culture Test. And uh, much of the information, the, the, the graphs and things that you're seeing here um, can be found at honorshame.com. It's a, it's a gentleman, uh, and there's many other places you can look and research on this subject, but much I, I pulled is from there. A gentleman who worked in Asia uh, for many years as a missionary and came to realize that the language that he was using, the culture that he was bringing, was not relating in the ways he expected. So as I took this little quiz, kind of exploring what, is, what are our um, cultural norms, our, our ways of thinking, what, what kind of categories do we fall into? What I came up with was 80, 12, and 8. 80% guilt, 12% shame, and 8% fear. Um, and, and, and again, that guilt innocence relates to individualistic cultures that are judicial in nature, shame and honor, collectivistic societies, um, uh, people are honorable and invited into community, or... Uh, out of community based on their actions and then fear and power and animistic cultures. So this is, this is the way my test came out. You can go and take one for yourself if you want and see, uh, see how it came out. Again, some, some people describe America kind of in terms of 70-30 on the guilt and shame perspective. But it was fascinating when I began reading this week. What I want to do with the remainder of our time and as we engage Scripture is I want to speak to this paradigm that's not entirely our own. It's kind of a more minor one. Uh, the, the subject of shame, this ugly little word that we, uh, that we really don't do a great job of talking about and considering the ways that it's affecting our lives and the lives of people around us. I want to talk about this subject of shame. Now, I have to be very careful here, and I hope that you'll hear me, and I hope I can articulate this clearly. Um, as we speak about shame in our Western context, uh, many of our um, psychologists and sociologists and, and, and many people in these fields are, are going to use the word shame in a very negative sense, okay? And, and rightfully so, because shame can have some very negative effects on people and, uh, and, and the ways we operate together. However, this is the really important part. Uh, nothing that we discuss about shame and its negative implications is intended to reflect negatively upon the 65% of the world that operate under different norms and systems. As I speak of like Brene Brown, who's done remarkable research on vulnerability and shame and its effect on people, uh, the conversation here is limited to our Western perspective, the effects it's having in our lives. I do not want to belittle or degrade or cast a, a, an ugly shadow upon nations and cultures that operate amongst different norms. What I do want to do today is I want to shift our conversation to the subject of shame in our cultural reality. Shame in the ways that we operate and experience life today. A recent study uh, that, I, that I read about in Christianity Today, a, a great publication, uh, showed that our younger generations, particular, particularly our millennials, are becoming more shame prone. That shame is on the rise in uh, the ways we perceive the experiences around us and the interactions that we have on people here in American culture. 
Now, shame and guilt are two different things, okay? Again, I'm going to use these terms. We've stepped out of the anthropological field, and we're talking in Western culture, in America, in our cultures. Uh, Guilt and shame are, are two different things. So Brene Brown leans heavily into this subject, saying that guilt references what I've done, while shame references who I am or what I am. Okay, so guilt speaks to the action, whereas shame speaks to um, the nature of who I am. So it, it looks something like this: uh, in the guilt paradigm, uh, when we're experiencing experiencing guilt, we're saying I have made a mistake, right? I've done something wrong. I've made a mistake. Whereas the shame category begins to tell us these tapes that play in our head say, I am a mistake. Right? So either I made a mistake or I am a mistake. Or um, I've done something wrong. Or on the shame side of things, I am something wrong. Right? And so this is the language of shame that, that's often uh, broadly distributed by people like Brene Brown and brilliant, brilliant people. And her work is remarkable, especially on um, the subject of vulnerability and the beautiful potential that it has within our lives. Um, However, uh, I'll remind again, her work is relative to our Western American perspective, Um, and uh, there's a lot of translation that would need to be done should we want to bring it into a wider global perspective. So shame has a a profound negative effect on our lives in Western culture. Uh, We are by nature relational beings, but the nature of shame is such that when we feel shame in our lives, it causes us us to withdraw. It, It tells us that we are unworthy of relationship, and shame causes us to withdraw from the very relationships that might bring healing to the shame. In fact, quite often, shame causes us to withdraw in ways that produces more shame in our lives as we find ourselves ostracized, sometimes turning to negative habits or things that are harmful to ourselves or the people around us. Shame can have an incredibly negative effect, and cycles of shame in our lives can produce destructive potential. Shame leads us down the road of a should mentality. I was talking with Paul this week. Uh, in fact, we were golfing together, but it was a really important business meeting because we talked about this sermon. Um, and I said, Paul, what kind of effects does shame have on people in our lives? And Paul spoke to me about just in his experience in pastoral work and as a life and leadership coach um, about should language. Shame drives us towards should language. Uh, Statements like, uh, I should lose some weight, I should try a little bit harder, I should contact that person, I've lost relationship. Uh, Whatever it is, uh, shame leads us into these should conversations. I should be a better parent, I should go to church. But should is not truly a motivated posture in our lives. Should is like those things that I know I'm not going to do, but I probably should be doing. Right, And he was explaining the way shame drives us into these places where we can look at, and the shame actually compounds as we think about the things I should be doing but am not doing. Shame often drives us into these uh, destructive cycles in our lives. So um, shame can be the result of, in our lives, something we've done, something that's been done to us, 
or something completely outside of our control and circumstances. I think most of us in our lives have experienced shame in some way, shape, or form. Um, and, and it comes from many places in our lives. I was listening to a podcast recently called The Liturgist, and the gentleman uh, that hosts, um, he was telling a story of how he grew up, uh, an extrovert went to kindergarten so excited, and on the playground, uh, they would play tag, and he soon realized that he couldn't keep up with the other kids. Once he was it, he could never get someone else to be it, and there was a boy in his class that discovered he could run backwards faster than this guy could run to chase him, and so he would run backwards, and they gave him uh, derogatory nicknames, and he soon came to realize that my body is something to be despised. But the teachers liked him, and they paid a lot of attention to him, and so he engaged deeply and spent as much time with the teachers as he could, uh, but soon came to realize after um, letters and conferences that he was going to be held back a year in school and his teachers were spending time to try to catch him up and he came to realize not only is my body something to be despised, but I'm not an intelligent person either. And he lived life with this kind of shame and his story is a beautiful one of, of hope and reconciliation and success in life. But, but each of us have those stories, those places that we've done something that brought shame into our lives or have been subjected to something that caused us to feel shame, that caused us to question the nature of who we are, that caused us to withdraw from circumstances that might bring more shame, quite often though, bringing us into deeper spirals of shame and hurt in our lives. So I want to go to Mark chapter 5 today, and, and we'll be fairly brief in the text and as we conclude, but I want to hear the language of honor in Scripture. I want to hear stories about what Jesus does in the face of shame in people's lives. So in Mark chapter 5, Jesus is on his way to heal an official's daughter. Mark 5, 24, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to who had done it, to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, Scripture here in this text very eloquently describes a woman um, suffering uh, from a, a distinct and terrible illness, uh, an uncontrolled, a continuous menstrual cycle uh, that the doctors had been unable to heal her of. And the tragic thing for this woman uh, was beyond the, uh, the sickness and the struggle uh, physically, 
was Levitical law defined a woman in this state to be unclean, unable to be in public, unable to be touched. So for years of her life, she found herself in isolation, living a life of shame. And on this day, as Jesus is passing through her town, a woman that knew nothing but shame, I can only experience the struggles in life that she had, the feeling of loneliness, the way she despised herself. She hears that Jesus will be passing through town. And in the boldest move she could possibly make, she chooses to brave the crowds. She chooses to push through the people that she can approach Jesus. And as she reaches out and touches his cloak, she's healed. And in that moment, can you imagine her excitement? And well, Jesus' disciples say, all right, that's enough. It's already happened. Jesus says, no, there's much more that needs to happen. I have to find this woman. And as she falls at his knees, uh, falls on her knees in front of his feet, terrified and telling the entire truth of what has happened, Jesus says to her the most beautiful word he could choose. He says, daughter. Do you hear the, the language of honor? In place of the shame and the isolation she had known for years, he calls her daughter. He says, your faith has healed you, so go in peace, freed from your suffering. Jesus, knowing she'd already been healed, said it's not enough because her shame remains. And so he looks her in the eye and he invites her to know relationship, restored community as a daughter of a loving God. You see, the antithesis to shame is to be seen to be known, and to be loved, to be valued. And where shame exists in our lives, and I have other scriptures, uh, Danny, just roll past them, but, but we're not going to go into on the, all the detail. If you want, you can snap um, a, a picture of it. Many other places that this language of honor, having been bestowed in the place of shame, are found in scripture. But I know this. For our culture that in my little test was 18% shame-driven, um, uh, maybe 30% shame-driven, I know that shame is a reality in our lives, in our worlds. I know that things that have happened to us, I know that we have done things that have resulted in shame that quite often will cripple if not combated. So here's the beautiful message and the application from the conversation I wanted to have today. God bestows honor where shame exists. God desires to restore people to community and to wholeness, to redefine the way we think of ourselves when the world tells us and the loops that start to play in our minds say, I am a problem or I am wrong or I am not right. God says, you are mine. You have been invited into my household. So the application is this. Shame may have played a large role in our lives. We will, we may continue to struggle with shame. But you have been honored and invited into the family of God. You are valued 
and you are invited to live in community confidently, confidently knowing that your identity is found in Christ, not something you've done or something that's been done to you, but that burden, that shame has been lifted by Jesus Christ, and we are invited to know community. You are invited to lay down your shame and to live as the loved child of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray about that. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for time to be together today. And Father, uh, we come from many different places and many different experiences, but all of us have known shame at some point in life. And I thank you, Father, that you invite us, uh, that you are willing to take the burden of shame in our lives, to give us a new name, to give us new life, uh, to honor us in such a way that we can be known as and live as your children. As those that have been forgiven, those whose shame has been removed, those that no longer need to live in fear, because, Father, you have conquered and you have forgiven and you have given us honor in the place of our shame. I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to live in relationship with you and those that you have invited into our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.